instead of it being, oh, here's what they said and it's not true. Say, here's the truth. You tell the truth, you tell the lie, and then you tell the truth again. Because it's 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 a matter of what what is it that's going to stick with people, and what are you reinforcing in people's in people's minds. Welcome to the 27th episode of On the Grid, a podcast dedicated to the Valley of the Sun. It's a place where you can come to meet the creatives and newsmakers, taking Phoenix to the next level. My name's Philip Haldeman, and I'll be your host. In this episode, we're talking politics. Now that the dust is pretty much settled on the 2018 election, we have Jim Small with Arizona Mirror to take a look back and forward with us. Jim has a long history of covering politics in Arizona, particularly at the state legislature. He spent 12 and a half years at the Capitol Times and became the editor in 2010. He was also executive director of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting for two and a half years. And now he leads the state's newest news organization, Arizona Mirror, which focuses on public policy and how it affects you. Jim, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Cool. So um, I definitely want to get your take on the election this year, but also just wanted to get to know you a little bit. So you um, grew up in Arizona, right? Yeah, born and raised in Phoenix. Okay. So what part of the, what part of the valley? I uh, grew up in North Phoenix, uh, kind of uh, 7th Street and Greenway, Thunderbird area okay. uh, primarily uh, before that. As a small, much smaller child, lived up 35th Avenue in Union Hills back when that was was frontier land, uh, basically ex-county land. So, so yeah, because I, uh, I grew up, um, well, I went to high school at 35th and Greenway during, they still had Sunburst Farms and a bunch of farms out there and stuff like that. So you, um, so then did you go to um, Glendale Union High School District? Yeah, I was in, I was in Glendale District, uh, would have gone to Thunderbird. Most of the kids I grew up with went to Thunderbird. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to private school. I, I got the, the joys of commuting downtown, uh, you know, or d- down, you know, when 10 miles public... away. When... When, well, yeah, either, either riding the bus or, or, you know, dealing with a pre- State Route 51, Oh, did Phoenix. you go to Brophy or something like that? I uh, went to Phoenix Christian. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that was private. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so, oh, so another connection you and I have is that I lived right across the street from there. Uh, one of the houses there, um, like directly right across basically from the marquee. That's where I like was born. And then I <laughs> and then I ended up on the West Valley at some point. But um, and I actually went to the Encanto district. So I was lived downtown for a while. So then were you involved in the school paper at the school? Or when did no. journalism... When did journalism enter your life? Uh, basically, right as I was getting ready to get out of college. I mean, to be honest with no. you, you know, it, it was one of those things. So where then you didn't get a degree in it, or you didn't I, I, at least initially. I've got a communications degree. Okay, so all right. I, you know, Back when you can actually have a communications degree and get hired, right? I sure, I guess. Not, I mean, it's journalism. I, right, you don't need a degree as long frankly, as you could write, so. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you could write. And it, no, it was one of those things where I had gone through three years at, at Northern Arizona and transferred down to Grand Canyon. There were, you know, just some life events that I needed to move back down to the Valley. And so I was able to, to transfer to Grand Canyon. Uh, one of the requirements they had there was that I had to take a journalism 101 class. Didn't want to take it. Was dreading it. Interesting. Went into the class, sat down, grumpy. Mm. Really liked the teacher. Was really engaged after the first day. And it was the, the teacher's actually, uh, my professor was Michael Kiefer, who has been at the Arizona Republic for a long time. Covers courts, right? Covers courts yeah. and, and corrections issues and criminal justice. But he has a huge background in writing. He writes novels. He writes he travel writing. He's done magazine profile writing. He's, he was at the New Times. 
uh, for a spell back in the in the 90s. Uh, so an incredibly diverse writer, someone who's done everything. And, and he was the professor. And, and I really enjoyed enjoyed his style and enjoyed learning from him. Uh, and, and I was always good at writing. So I did well in the class and I needed to take another class the next semester. So I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll see what, what else is Michael teaching because I'll just take his classes. And so I ended up really just kind of falling ass backwards more or less into doing this and, and realized that I really liked it. And so by the time, you know, my, my final semester, I, I was editor of the school paper uh, and at, got, at got Glendale, out or at, uh, sorry, at Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon yeah. yeah, and ended up getting out of of school and was able to get get uh, a job at the Glendale Star and the Peoria Times, uh, the the Toops family, which has owned those those papers for uh, a couple generations now mm-hmm. and, and run them. Uh, you know, they were they were benevolent enough to hire, a, you know, a, a, a know nothing, no experience, very, very minor experience. Uh, well, you had some samples, it sounds like. You I know? had a little bit, yeah. but, you know, it was certainly not much and, and definitely not, you know, that was back in an era when, when coming out of school, you didn't have what these kids from Cronkite have today. Oh, my I mean, God, it's totally different. The amount yeah. of work that they do that's as prepared as some of those kids are when they come out. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, they do better work coming out of school than I did three or four years into my professional career. But so you, so you're working for the community newspapers and then at some, at one point you started working for the yellow sheet, which explain what the yellow sheet is. Yeah. So back in uh, 2004, I got hired at the Arizona Capital Times, uh, which was, still is a a weekly newspaper uh, that covers state politics and government, uh, things like that. And that's the public facing thing. That's what most people are aware of. There are a number of other products that they sell. And in particular, information and, and data products, um, some of them are, are, most of them are aimed at lobbyists or government professionals, people who work at a state agency or for a city or for a lobbying firm. And one of those is the Yellow Sheet Report. Uh, that is basically an insider tip sheet that comes out every day, uh, really is aimed at kind of that political chattering class, the way that, the way that I always approach running it. Uh, when I took over in 2010 was... So you were the editor of... Yeah, I became the editor in 2010. Um, and, and so when I, when I took it over, I, my, my goal was really to give, give readers, wanted them to be the smartest person at the cocktail party. So I wanted them to be able to read it at, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, five o'clock in the afternoon. And if they were going to go meet someone for drinks or they were going to go to a cocktail party or a fundraiser, I wanted our readers, our clients to be the people who knew all of kind of the inside gossip and the scoop. Particularly in, in the realm of go- local government and stuff like that, right? Uh, specifically state government. State we, government we, we didn't yeah. delve too much into local government. Every now and then we did. The legislature. Was, yeah, but the legislature or the governor's administration or state agencies or uh, what was happening in, in other other groups who were, who were trying to push policy. So what kind of stuff were you kind of covering when you were there? Oh gosh. Uh, well, like what would I, be something that like people might know about? Yeah. Well, I mean, like when I was a reporter at the Capitol Times, I mean, I covered everything from the state budget to immigration issues. I, SB 1070 was was a big thing, you know, or the precursors, frankly, to that. That was an idea that caught certainly caught lightning in a bottle when it happened. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd spent the the five years prior to that covering basically SB 1070, but just wow. bills that didn't get signed into law all of the elements of it uh, in individual or, or various kind of combinations of them. So now as a journalist, you have to kind of learn as you go. You get some, you learn something new every day, basically, you know? So did you struggle with covering the state legislature to begin with? I mean, was it hard, like, was it hard to figure out the inner workings of that or? 
Yes and no. I, I was fortunate in that when I was uh, a junior in college, I was an intern at the state capitol. Ah, okay. So I, I worked, in fact, my internship was working in the media center in the state senate, which basically wow, that's in, a good it, entailed sitting in the basement in a windowless room, operating remotely operating cameras and and audio equipment. So they've got they got cameras mounted in all of the it, it, all the rooms where they have hearings. And they're all remotely operated. So it's just sitting there with little joysticks, you know, operating the, the, the pan, the tilt, and the zoom, and, and the whole thing. And Were they available? Were those um, streaming at the time? They or? were streaming online. It was one of okay. the very first legislative streaming sites in the wow. entire country. Uh, they, they just launched the streaming like the year before I'd gotten there. Uh, and, and they were also broadcast to closed-circuit television. Now it's available on Cox Cable. There's a, a channel if you it's have... It's like our C-SPAN type it, thing? Yeah, if you have one of the higher tiers of... And I have no idea what number it is or anything. I don't I don't have Cox, but it's available for anyone to watch, but certainly online, and now it's archived all online. But it, it gave me the, the ability to basically watch everything that happened in the state Senate. Uh, I got to see most of the committees, got to certainly see everything that happened on the floor every day. And so you got... A lot of interns, when they go to the Capitol, they're assigned to a committee, and they work with just the education committee. So they know education legislation inside and out, mm. but they don't know what happens after it leaves the committee. They don't follow it. But in 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 the position I was in, I was actually able to watch bills yeah, go from committee. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, they could go from I could watch them go from one committee to another committee, then to the floor, and then you know for for uh, consideration there with amendments, and then to a vote, and then. Two months later, when it came back from the other chamber and they did another vote on it, I get to watch that whole process again, too. And so it was really instructive in terms of how does government work? How is policy created? You know, certainly we didn't we weren't aware of necessarily all the politics at the time by watching it all. Uh, but we did have some people who were more who are were our supervisors who were the full time staff who did know the politics and would tell us, OK, here's what's really happening here. And, and so we got, we got clued in on a lot of that. And, and, you know, that background really helped out a lot when it came to be, oh, it yeah. came time to be a reporter. So when I walked in there, it, it was absolutely overwhelming. I mean, and you know, your, your job is to report. I was assigned to the state house. So my job was 60 people, 800 bills, you know, all of the you know, 15 committees. In all like this three stuff. months or whatever. Yeah. And they, yeah, they meet over Sometimes the course of about a hundred days ish. Yeah. Take, it's a hustle, days. I imagine, right? Oh, it is. It's, it's, you know, it's drinking from a fire hose. But at the very least, the things I didn't have to learn were what is a committee? How does the bill move through the process? Yeah. How that do some of the, what are some of these, uh, uh, you know, procedural maneuvers? I had some of those down. So it was just a couple of less things to learn. Wow. And that was while you're at Grand Canyon or? That was at NAU, actually. Okay. Yeah. They, you basically interned for a session there, basically, and you yeah. kind of had all that background, and that really helped you out while you were at the Yellow Sheet. Um, so how long were you at Yellow Sheet? Uh, yeah, I mean, total, I was at the Capital Times, um, the, the parent company there is called Arizona okay. News Service. I was there for about 12 and a half years. Okay. So I spent right. about half the time as a reporter, the other half as an editor. Okay. Ultimately oversaw, by the time I left, it was it was overseeing all of the editorial content that came out of the okay. building. So you, your next step, which just happened more recently, was Arizona, is Arizona Mirror, right? Well, actually, I, after I left the Capital Times, I uh, took over as executive director of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting. Yes, of course, uh, yes. In, in late 2016 and, and did that for uh, close to two years. Explain that model, too, because that was all online, right? Yeah, so, okay. yeah, so it's a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, that is really dedicated to doing long-form investigative deep dive stories, uh, and and especially data-driven stories, uh, things where it, it's not just telling a story, telling someone's story, but it's telling someone's story and showing 
look, here's the data that backs it up, or here's why that that one person's story, here's why Philip's story is just one of a thousand or a hundred or fifty examples that we're able to find in this data, uh, and and really use it to 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 show what's actually happening in in public policy or or just elsewhere in the state, uh, you know, whether it's healthcare or school finance or elections or anything like that. Uh, and so, so the model, all Arizona stuff, though, all right? Arizona yeah, stuff, content. yeah, okay, yeah, and 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 with a with a focus on statewide things, you know, okay. with, with stories that are hopefully going to resonate with people from whether they live in Ajo or they live in Page or okay. Lake Havasu or anywhere in between. Okay, at the Capitol, you were writing shows on a writing stories on a weekly basis, I imagine, of course, but like or multiple stories for that matter. What about with the model that you're just talking about? It was definitely not a regimented publish, publishing model. You know, I mean, certainly at the Capital Times, we had daily deadlines, we had weekly deadlines, we had, you know, monthly publication deadlines. There were all kinds of things, all kinds of balls that we were juggling. Uh, at AZCIR, it was very much the opposite. It was, okay, we've got a story. Let's do the story until it's done, um, which is it's a blessing and a curse all at the same time. Okay, you know, yeah. it's, it's nice Explain to be able that, to work yeah. on something, right. but without having deadline. deadlines really do drive you to get stuff done right you know if, if you know you don't have a deadline it's it can be difficult sometimes to get something done or to f- kind of get into that mode of oh, i feel like i'm just one or two details away or one or two quotes away and, and you just kind of start tinkering and 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 you don't get anything really to say okay we got to call it we got to we're going to publish it today or we'll publish it tomorrow or we're going to publish it on friday or, or whatever the timeline is uh you know so that was a learning curve for sure eventually did you just have to set a deadline at some point or? oh yeah absolutely okay that that's that almost almost at almost from 100% the, the way it worked. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. You'd have a longer deadline than, say, at Capital Times, of course. But sure. Yeah. Okay. But, but it, it's certainly great to have the freedom to say, okay, I'm going to spend six weeks working certainly. on a project. You know, and, and I'm not going to have to worry about, oh, well, I've got to, I have to write three things today and I've got to write six things by the end of the week. Right. And, and, and I've got to kind of do that, that feeding the beast, feeding the media beast that right. you have to do uh, when you have more, more da- daily and weekly deadlines. Do you, know if there's a difference between that sort of reporting in terms of having a significance or in terms of having an effect um you know that's a good question i i i think one of the challenges we had and, and one of the things i did was, was i really sped up our production process at okay. CIR. it was one of my goals was going from publishing three or four things a year to let's try to publish 15 to 20 things a year so some of them are shorter. You know, let's pick on some projects that we, we know we can do in a week or we can do in 10 days that aren't going to be as intense. Or, or let's find something that is happening in the moment and let's kind of write a quick data-driven analysis of something that's in the news at the time. Uh, and so we did several of those projects because you do need to have that visibility. You know, if, if you publish something and you go away for four months and no one sees you, it is tough the next time you publish something to get people to be interested in it or to pay attention to it or, or even to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was trying to strike that balance of what can two people do, you know, when, when we're in the middle of working on long projects, we're trying to to do all the other things that go along with, with running a nonprofit. How can we also increase what we produce so that way that way we, we don't disappear for weeks or hopefully not months at a time? The lack of presence can be a detriment oh 100 yeah it, it's a detriment for getting other publications to republish your content which is one of the things that we always try to do uh and it's a detriment for for fundraising uh and and for you know going out and finding media partners that want to work with you on a project uh and then so arizona mirror comes in now explain what arizona mirror is because it's new um and it's 
it sounds like the model is similar to what you were doing, but is there a difference? Yeah, it, it, it is. It, yeah, the, it, it is similar and, and it is different at the same time. It's, it's you know, we launched at the end of September. Uh, we are a, again, 501c3 nonprofit newsroom uh, that's dedicated, in this case, to, to state house coverage. State house coverage. Uh, uh, so we're covering what happens in the Capitol, what happens in government, what happens with policy, uh, but with a, a specific focus on... You know, that's obviously my background. I've spent a lot of time covering that. But the audience that I've always written for uh, at the Arizona Capital Times is an audience that's already engaged and plugged in. And in a lot of ways, it's an it's an audience that's looking in. And, and you write for you write for an in crowd, hmm. which has its place. And, and there's a lot of value to that, without a doubt. But having left the Capital Times for about two years and been a regular, I'm not even a regular news consumer. I mean, I, I read news voraciously. I keep up on it as much as I can especially political news, because it's something that I'm, I'm familiar with, even in that circumstance, having not following everything that's happening every single day and kind of all the, the beats and twists and turns of, of what's happening on public policy, mm. I would read it and go, I feel like I'm missing something. Like, I feel like I've picked up a book and I'm in chapter four. You're talking about after being removed from it? Yeah. For a while? Okay. Yeah. You know, I'd pick up, I'd read stories that were, whether they were in the Republic or they were, mm. Uh, mm. you know, uh, things that like, like Howie Fisher from Capital Media Services, who's this amazing one man wire service, things that he would write that would get published. You know, I would read them. And, and these are things that are written for a general audience in a, in, a, in major daily newspapers. And I'd read them and I'd feel like, God, I'm, I'm on like chapter four of a book, mm-hmm. like, and, and I don't know what's happening. And, and it, it's, it's something that happens with reporters too, as much as they don't try to do it, you do end up writing because it's just, it, it's the fourth time you've written about something. It's the 10th time you've written about this bill and you end up shorthanding it and you write in, in references to, you know, that, that makes sense to you that j- just kind of make it go quicker. Right. And as a result, it just becomes this insular, you know, you're talking to yourself or you're talking to people who already know what's going on. And someone who just picks up the newspaper for the day and says, "Oh, what's yes. going on with this bill?" You you may be kind of lost. You're missing on it. content. You are. You're missing context. 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 And, and, you, know, and yeah. you don't know necessarily what's happening. And it's through. It's nothing intentional on the reporter's fault, but it's it's something that just happens because you spend all of your time focused on this one beat mm-hmm. or this one totally, thing that's yeah. happening. So what we want to do with the mirror is we we want to make sure that we're, we're telling stories in a way that is designed to talk to people who aren't already engaged in politics and we, we really want to get folks to pay attention to what's happening in the state house and, and tell stories that are going to resonate with people who don't have the luxury or the who uh, they think or, it will or resonate the, with or, them or the ill fate of spending 40 40 or 50 hours a week paying attention to public policy because right. let's face it that is dull as hell, <laughs> right public policy is boring politics may not be boring but it certainly turns a lot of people off right it's it's nasty and it's ugly so, so we, we really want to be able to tell public policy stories that attract attention from people and, and, and kind of crack through all of the other stuff that's happening in people's lives to get them to say, hey, here's something that's happening. Here's, and, and here's why we think you should care. Here's why it's important to you. And, and the way to do that, and one of the things I, I, I love about, that I learned from AZCIR was really humanizing things, not just talking about, oh, the legislative committee heard a bill and they passed this bill and they did this. That's good. That's important information. That's not engaging. It's not interesting, you know. But if you can go and you can talk to the person who that bill is going to help, or who it's going to hurt, or who it's going to, you know, whatever, and, and put a human face on it, well, then there's a reason. There's a reason for someone to read that story, and and someone who's not a policy wonk to get past the first three sentences, and you know, hopefully, it just gets them to pay attention and to know what's happening in their state government. 
You know, I think in an ideal world, it, it it's something that spurs them to action, whether it's to call their legislator and say, support this or don't support this or or get involved somehow in, in, in public policy. I mean, I think that would be the ultimate goal of, of any journalism is to engage the public to the point of activism. But at a bare minimum, if someone can read our stories and have an interest in an issue or learn something about what's happening at the state capitol on an issue that's going to affect their life or their family's life or their friend's life, I think that's a win. Like, why is this particular story or policy that seems really boring at first glance, why is it really important and how can you and what can you do to write how write it in a way that is engaging, you know? Sure. That's difficult, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we, we had a, an interesting story that, that I think is a great example of that one of my one of my coworkers did. It was, it's a story about a state agency budget requests, which, I mean, my God, can you make something more boring? And state agencies saying, well, here's how much money we need for the next year. Uh, you know, I mean. But it lies interesting in to me. the it, request, you it, know? It does. It's interesting to me, but that is just a topic that is, you know, I, I think it, it's like rohypnol for people it's just going to put them to sleep but one of the things that was in these requests was you had a number of state agencies who said hey you know that minimum wage increase that voters passed a couple years ago the state's not funding us to pay for that for our contractors so when we hire uh people to go provide say in-home service to people who are uh you know uh, who can't leave their house uh who have medical conditions who are you know uh, they're homebound who, who are homebound well, the state hires companies to go do that. The state doesn't do that itself. It, it hires a vendor to go out and provide those services. Well, that vendor is paying its people minimum wage or slightly above. So when the minimum wage rises, their costs rise. And so they tell the state, hey, look, I know we signed a contract for X amount of dollars, but we signed that four years ago or three years ago. And the minimum wage was at a certain point, and now it's a lot higher now. We're we're eating we're right. eating that cost. We need more money. And so the state is going out and and now trying or these agencies are trying to ask for more money so that way their providers don't go out of business and the people who depend on that in-home care for instance aren't left wondering where that in-home care is going to come from so what what the reporter did was went out and talked to those companies talked to the people who own those companies talked to the people who worked at those companies went with them to go talk to the people who were getting the service who were getting that care just you know about hey this is an issue that directly affects their life. It's not just a paragraph in a budget request, which is the way most political media tends to treat that kind of thing. It's actually, you know, I, I've told my reporters this, and, and we've, we've talked about it a lot, is the best way that we're going to cover this, the Capitol is by leaving the Capitol, is by getting away from the Capitol and going out and talking to people who are have no interest in what's happening at the Capitol but maybe they ought to they ought to have some interest because there's things that are happening that are going to directly affect. Them. And isn't that doesn't that take a bit more time than you know your standard weekly or like oh, type story, you know what I it mean? It does. It it absolutely does. And and you know we've got the freedom of of you know we don't we're online only so we don't have a right. print publication to worry about. Right. We don't have a you know a weekly paper that we've got to get done by Wednesday evening so that way it can be printed on Thursday and in the mail by Friday. Sounds and, familiar, yeah. And all that stuff. And <laughs> and that's the life that you know I had largely lived for you know being out in Glendale and at the Capital Times and and, and you know so we we certainly we want to be producing content and we do every day. You know we've got I'd say anywhere between two and five things that we publish every day. Some of them are smaller than others, but for some of these bigger pieces, they definitely take a little bit more time. But that's okay. We, I think we have the freedom. This is kind of that balance, I think, almost between the daily, the grind of working at a, 
at a legacy news operation versus what we were doing at AZCIR, which was kind of no rules, no boundaries, no, uh, you know, no deadlines. Uh, and, and this is a little bit more in the middle. So, you know, we can, I can have people who go, who do spend two or three weeks working on a project. It's not gonna be the only thing they work on. They're going to work on a few other things along the way. Uh, but, but we're able, you know, I'd rather if, if my choice is publish something on Wednesday that is not quite great, not, not that great or, or 75% of what it could be mm. or wait until Friday or Monday to do it because maybe Monday, because they're going to go out over the weekend and they're going to go talk to somebody or, you know, go, go visit something. I don't have a hole in a printed publication that I've got to worry about. Right. Yeah. And so that kind of does beg the question that people have struggled with in the industry of, of, of like, well, do we hold on this to, to, um, to have a wider effect and, uh, for the right, you know, the perfect source or whatever, or do we publish now to beat out, you know, our competitor or whatever? Yeah. Like, like, how do you, like, is that an issue with you it at can, this point? It can be. I mean, I think it depends on the story. I think there's obviously some things that you, you look at and you're like, oh, this is really time sensitive. Like we need to move on this now. It's not, it's not quite what we want, but it's for what it is, it's going to be fine. Uh, because there's a time sensitivity either because you're trying to, you know, we're competitive. So you, right. you know, we're trying to beat Howie. We're trying to beat the Capital right. Times, trying to beat right. the Republic on something, whatever it is. Or it, it's a situation where, you know, there's something that's happening right now. And tomorrow it's not going to be happening. Or, or the day after that it's not going to be happening. So we're better served by putting it out now. Um, you know, and, and those are really just kind of case-by-case evaluations. I think that, you know, ultimately are my decision as editor. But that, you know, we certainly talk about, you know, okay, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to push, do you, do you want to do this right now? You know, do you want to, do you want to publish right. what we have or do you want to wait? We can always, if you get more information, we can do a follow-up, you know, kind of, how do you want to handle that? So, and you kind of mentioned the, the competitors being like the new kid on the block. Is it hard to, to gain the respect of other readers and things like, cause people will, you know, they'll be like, oh, I only read the Republic or whatever, you know, Capital Times. I mean, do, do, you, do you, are you experiencing any of that at all? Uh, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate in that, you know, myself and, and my associate editor, uh, Jeremy Duda, we both come into this with a lot of experience covering politics. And, uh, you know, I think between the two of us, we've got more than two decades doing it, it, you know, here in Arizona. So people know who we are. We've, we've built reputations and, and, you know, certainly I can speak for myself carefully, you know, carefully guarded our reputations as, as working journalists. I mean, uh, you know, there's, I, I think nothing more important to, to any, anyone in that profession than what your reputation is among the people you're covering. Um, because, you know, if, if people don't think you're trustworthy or they think you're going to, you're going to stab them in the back or you're going to screw them on something, you know, your sources dry up really quick. Uh, so you, you got to be careful of that kind of stuff. But, as far as how the other media views this, I, I really don't know. I mean, yeah. I think that we know most of them. You know, we've worked right. alongside most of them for years. Um, you know, so it, journalists tend to be territorial. Is oh, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Not oh, all yeah. of them are, but a lot of them are. So yeah, and and I, I honestly don't view anyone. You know, I don't view the Republic as a competitor of ours or, or the Capital Times or Howie. I mean, I think that we've all got slightly different kind of mission statements in terms of right. who our audience is and what we're trying to accomplish with with our work. Uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously we will all cover the same stories or we'll all chase stories and, and we all want to be the first one to get them. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, the Republic is the Republic, right? I mean, I, I don't know if they have a competitor here in as much as they just have, there's smaller media organizations that exist and every now and right. then they yeah. just decide that they want to acknowledge that they exist. And a lot <laughs> of times they don't, you know, and, and the Capital Times speaks to this in crowd, um, you know, mm -hmm. the, this really plugged in, engaged audience. 
you know, how he speaks to largely to to people in rural parts of the state. I mean, that's where most of his, oh. a lot of his clients are yeah. in rural parts of the state. I mean, there are there are no joke millions of people in this state who wouldn't get news from the capital if were it not for Howie. You know, so he does he does great work, and and in Tucson, he's the primary source of legislative news. Um, you know, we, we certainly want to talk to those people, but you know, we're not certainly we don't have the megaphone. You know, that that someone like Howie does with with having you know a couple dozen clients across the state who who are going to broadcast his stuff everywhere. Hmm. All right, so uh, politics, politics, politics. All right, big, politics. Big year, two thousand eight. I mean, uh, tons of turnout. Like the big thing, kind of that. Everybody was saying, "Are we voting against Trump?" Obviously, he's not running for president this right. this, this election. So, but like, is this was, was this whole election based on Trump, or do you think there is more to it than that? Um, I think a lot. There was a lot of Trump, a lot of Trump in this election. I think there's always more to it because individual candidates matter. This is not a situation, and Arizona is a great example of that. As you look at who won, who lost races. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, there are some Republicans, you know, who won really, really big, really handily. Governor Ducey won, you know, 15-ish points over David Garcia. And yet on the same ticket, you know, literally the race right above it is that Kirsten right. Cinema martha McSally race where, where Kirsten Cinema wins right. Right? And, and beats Martha McSally. And, and, you know, there's varying reasons for that. Um, and, and some of them certainly have to do with Trump. I think there's no doubt about it. I think polling... Uh, in Arizona was really, I think, pretty clear and pretty consistent that even if Trump was more pop, was more popular than he was unpopular, you know, in, in those poll those poll results, it wasn't by a lot, and he certainly isn't popular among a majority of Arizonans. Um, you know, best case scenario, he's got about maybe forty five percent of Arizonans who think he's doing a good job. Do you think that? Um, I mean, McSally lost by so small. Do you do you see her? coming back at any time? Oh, I mean, I think there's a, a pretty good chance that she'll get appointed. Uh, so the, the John McCain seat that was after Senator McCain died, uh, the Governor Ducey appointed uh, John oh, Kyle, Kyle yeah. to, the, to that seat. Uh, and Kyle was pretty clear at the time that I'm going to do this, but I don't want to do this for very long. And he committed, I think, to doing it through the end of the year. Uh, I thought it was two years, no? No. He, well, oh, okay. So he, he committed to doing it through the end of 2018. Ah, there's going to be okay. an election in 2020. Right. To fill okay. out the remainder so, of that term. So he's probably not going to stick around till 2020. Oh, no. I, I would be shocked if he does. Okay. Um, so he's he is probably, you know, come New Year's, my um, guess is he's out the door, which means the governor gets to appoint someone else to that seat. Uh, there is certainly a lot of pressure on him uh, at the national level, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure a fair amount at the local level as well, uh, to appoint Martha McSally to that seat. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of as a, I guess, more or less a consolation prize for, you know, she, she ran a campaign and she ran hard and she almost won, but, uh, you know, you didn't get the full term, but we'll give you, uh, the next two years basically of this term. And then you got to run again in 2020 for the remainder of Senator McCain's term. And then that seat comes up for election on its own in 2022. So we're going to have three U S Senate races, no matter what. In the span of four years, and both of them women, of course, and uh, uh, Secretary of State, a woman Democrat. Mm -hmm. uh, do you do you know how many women there are that were elected to the state legislature? Uh, it's it's in the thirties, I think, like thirty eight, maybe something like that. So you just I, uh, of the ninety women, was it is it just due? Is it time? For uh, this, you know, or... in, in the legislature, I do know that it actually dropped by one. I think the number of oh, women really? actually dropped by one from what it was two years ago. Um, uh, but. 
uh, you know, Arizona's always, you know, frankly, always been kind of a really true. ahead of the curve on in, on electing true, yeah. women both to the legislature and the governor uh, yeah. and to statewide offices. Right. Uh, but we, you know, I mean, this year, I mean, definitely look, U.S. Senator, you had Secretary of State. Uh, we we uh, elected a woman as state treasurer, a woman as secret, uh, superintendent of public instruction, and they elected uh, a, a woman to the Arizona Corporation Commission. I mean, so like they're without a doubt. Um, you know, and then you can talk about the federal level too, which is huge. Oh, sure, so yeah, the, absolutely, yeah. I mean, U.S. You look, House you look and all nationally. Stuff, you know? I mean, yeah, there was yeah. A, a lot of a lot of women, primarily Democratic women. Right. I, I know that there are a few Republican women, new at least new newly elected um, to their first term, uh, Republican women nationally. Because you had like two really, you had the Me Too movement, obviously, and then you had the Red for Ed movement, um, and. How much do you think those, I mean, we're kind of talking about, about the women here, but how much do you think those two movements kind of had over over the results here? Yeah, education definitely drove a lot. I mean, it, it, this it, Arizona it has historically, you know, really supported public education, um, even if it means taxing itself. Uh, so, so that even though that Red for Ed initiative got tossed off the ballot, I think that there was still a fervor among voters, you know, to, to go out there and support support candidates who supported education it, you know uh, even even if that meant voting uh you know in a state that historically votes for republicans for just about everything even if that meant voting for democrats um you know and and, and so that was evident in a lot of legislative races there were a number of you know there was one of the uh teachers um uh who was involved in a lot of the 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 pro education funding movement um out in chandler mm-hmm. one in a very what has always been a heavily republican district mm-hmm. uh but they elected a, Demo- a democratic former teacher you know to to represent them at the state capitol and i think that, that definitely sends a signal and it could also kind of change the dynamic moving forward and i would imagine you know uh also uh the gago valenzuela race there's a runoff mm-hmm. um i feel like that the whole mayoral seat in phoenix has just been void kind of well since since stan left it's kind of like everything's been shifting and like nothing's been permanent since for i feel like almost a year now you know <laughs> So yeah, I mean, yeah, we've been talking about. I remember there was the big wait on when was Stanton going to leave because right. he, he was yes. already running for Congress. Yes, they were talking like about three it. Three yeah. or four or five months before he actually left. And, right. Yeah, everyone right. knew it was coming, but and now we'll finally see some fun, some you know something final uh, runoffs in March. I think March. Yeah. Why do I have to wait so long to do that? Like that's uh, the next. It's the next time that the city has an election. Okay. Uh, basically, so the, 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 there's four election dates on the calendar. Gotcha. You've got March and May and August and November, and so that's gotcha. Since this was in November, it got pushed off. The next one gets pushed off to March. So I saw them at a debate at Phoenix College, um, like a month before the election. Um, Valenzuela didn't seem quite as sharp as Diego. Um, so I'm kind of curious to get, you know, what you think about that. Yeah, I, I think that was the general consensus was, was you know, what, what I heard from a number of people that I spoke with. Um, and, and I didn't cover this race closely. I, I, I followed it as mm-hmm. a as a Phoenix resident. Sure. Uh, yeah. More, more than anything. But I think the general consensus from people who, who I talked to who were engaged in, in the race were, was that, you know, they felt as though Kate Gallego was driven to be like that she she really wants to be mayor she's got plans she's got something that she wants to accomplish either in mayor or by being mayor that is going to help her accomplish something bigger uh and uh, that that daniel valenzuela didn't seem to have that and there was a you know some some kind of 
questioning is, well, what does he want to do? Why does he want to be mayor? Is it just because it's there? Right. Is it gotcha. because it's just kind of the natural next step from being a councilman? Right. Um, or or is there an actual, you know, kind of a thesis statement to his campaign that I, I think seemed to be lacking for a lot yeah. of people? It certainly yeah. seemed to be, uh, frankly, in the voter mail that I got, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that my wife and I got. I, I, the, the messaging from the Valenzuela campaign and, and its allies seemed kind of all over the place. Like it didn't, there didn't seem to be kind of a, a, a you know, here's what we're talking about. Yeah. Here's, here's our delineation of what we believe and, and why we're, why we want to be mayor. It was, you know, education on one piece, firefighter on another piece, and if I right, right. on another, you know, like it was really a, a disparate kind of collection it was almost like a collection of short stories as opposed to you know a novel that's got like a a like a, a, a really good strong right point. narrative or whatever mm-hmm. yeah do you happen to know um the uh the difference in uh, how much each of those camps raised not offhand i don't I, okay. I know I that curious. i know that kate gallego had more money um i do know that she was the better funded. okay she was the better funded candidate because you know it's it seems i mean obviously I guess you you don't have a chance of getting elected to anything big unless you have some sort of huge machine or fundraising behind you. I mean, like, do you think that that we could ever get over that hurdle and have a a little bit more um, equality or or opportunity for those that don't make get millions of dollars? You know, resources aren't everything, but they are a lot. You know, they they do go a long way and and they're important for being able to convey your message, Um, you know, and, and so... I mean, yeah, sure. There are solutions to you know equalize that or to to put all the candidates on on equal footing. But what it requires fundamentally is making making a system where everyone would have to take public financing, for instance. Like the way the presidential campaigns used to work prior to, I think Obama was the first one uh, in his re-election campaign who didn't take the the public financing, and obviously Trump didn't take it, and and I don't think Hillary Clinton did either. Uh, we've kind of hit that point where there's enough money in the private sector to support these campaigns at that level. But but it, the way it used to work was the candidates all took public financing for, mm-hmm. for president. And so, so you had relatively even amounts. Um, you know, they were able to go out and raise some more money on their own, but they couldn't go out and raise a billion dollars like like Obama did in Crazy, 2012, yeah. which is a lot of money. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and, and so at the state level, we have the clean election system, uh, clean elections, uh, mm-hmm. public finance campaigns. But it has been uh, dismantled in, in places for, by, by lawsuits over the years. And so it's definitely not what it was. It's definitely not what voters passed anymore um, when, when voters approved it in, in 1998. Uh, there's been a lot of changes to it, and it's, it's less effective now. Uh, and at the same time as legislators, or at the same time as the courts were, were winnowing away at what clean elections could do, legislators were doing things like increasing campaign finance limits and trying to inject more money into candidates who who don't use clean elections and so you mm. you've really widened the gap even more uh on on those issues and and so you, you end up you end up in situations where you know you have a candidate like david garcia uh who's running for governor uh, you know we did an analysis of it he probably you know we haven't seen his final campaign finance report but it, it covers like the last two weeks of the election i don't think he right. was out there raising a whole lot of money in that time everyone knew he was g- gonna lose the race so i don't i don't expect that he had you know eight hundred thousand dollars that rolled in but he would have probably been better off running as a clean elections candidate uh just because he he, he barely outraised what he would have gotten in clean elections so wait, just ex- yeah. explain clean election candidate um yeah so clean elections it, it, people who opt into that system 
they opt into the rules and, and they say, okay, we're, I, I, I have to go out and I have to collect a certain number of small dollar contributions, which are in $5 increments. Uh, and depending on the office you're running for determines how many of those you have to go get. But you go out and get those. And for governor, I don't remember the number, it says like 1,500. So you go out and you get 1,500 voters to sign a form and give you $5. And then you take that into clean elections and you turn it in and they turn around and they give you, here's the set amount for your race. Like So for a legislative race, it's going to be, 15,000 in the primary and 30,000 in the general uh, and and for the governor it's so they'll basically be, give you more money yeah they'll give you right. they'll, they'll give you a set amount you can't raise yes. money from special interests you can't go out and get PAC money you the only you you the only money you can raise is that five dollars and some really small other small contributions. This is the reason why through the pamphlet you said there was nobody underneath the clean elections descriptions because nobody not many people did that. Very few people did. You it. know? Yeah, absolutely. Because there's far more money to be so, raised. So like initially you'd have you would have to make candidates do this, pass a law that says you need to do this. Yeah, that would which be- might. Or might not happen, which probably won't happen because I, I, I don't. I don't expect it will. Because happen. well, certainly the legislature will never do. People it. in power don't want to give up power. That, that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, it would take the voters. The voters had to pass clean elections, put this system in place in the, in the work, first place. Though. It would take the voters having to do it again. You, which would, it didn't happen this time around. Yeah, you would inevitably have First Amendment issues. I mean, there there would be. There would be litigation that arose from it. And be lit. I mean, th- this whole thing would... I, I don't know that there's a good way forward mm-hmm. right now uh, in terms of, you know, if you, if you want to talk about, like, getting money out of politics or leveling the playing field between uh, between candidates or, or, or putting them on, on some more equal footing. I, I don't know that there's really a good way to square that with the, where, with the way our courts have ruled and certainly not with the way our legislature would approach that issue right now. Um, mm. Yeah, so it, it's, you know... I, that that's a way I know that there are some places in the world that have done systems like that where they say, okay, everyone, if you're going to run for this office, you get, here's the money you get. Now go out and spend it however you want. You know, you can go spend it on, on your campaign, uh, but that's all you get. And so you get an opportunity to make your case. And it, it's really more about, you know, who are the candidates and what are the ideas that they have as opposed to who has the most money behind them and the loudest megaphone and the ability to flood your television and your email inbox and your Facebook feed and your Twitter feed with as many ads as possible. The whole campaign finance thing that we're talking about here really kind of lends itself to this, you know, this divisiveness that we all have and this distrust with government and and this the political climate that we're in right now where, oh, everybody, it's like, like Democrats hate the Republicans and vice versa. And we're not going to work with you. We're not going to reach across. Oh, we're not going to do anything like that. And I don't see that. Sh- I don't see that changing anytime soon. I, oh no! I mean, like things have gotten so. Is much it more, just like once yeah. something happens, you know, like we never really go back to the way it once was? You know, like when will we continue to to just be this sort of like mudslinging, like Machiavellian fucking political system that will get worse and worse and worse? Probably, I it would be my answer to that. I I, I don't know. I I don't know how you how you kind of get out of this tailspin right now, uh, and and it's made worse by. You know, as as many great things as the internet has brought us, I mean, I think this is an example of kind of that, you know, those unintended consequences and maybe some of the negative effects of, of the internet and in particular social media, you know, platforms like like Face Facebook, I uh, being the largest is, is the one that that I think you can talk about the the easiest is, is you know it's Facebook's designed to give you more of what you like. So <laughs> if you if you really like recipes, great, you know, you're gonna get a lot of recipes. Or you really like watching 
Tutorial. Well, as long as you talk about recipes and post about recipes, sure, or, or like you that. or you follow recipe pages, or you right. you do all that yes. stuff and, and, and things right. like that, and so Facebook learns and it says, okay, oh, this person likes to bake, they like to cook, right. they like to grill, so here's more videos about barbecuing, here's more yes. recipes, you know, for how to make the perfect bunt cake or or whatever, and that's great for that. That's there's I don't know if there's really a downside for that, but when you talk about politics, you say, well, I really like liberal politics, or I really like conservative politics. Facebook does what it does, and it says, "Oh, I'm going to give you more of that. I'm going to. You really like conservative politics. I'm going to give you more of these things. Or you really like liberal. I'm going to give you more of this." And before it's the you echo know, chamber, before that... you know it, you've developed an echo chamber. And, and Facebook is is in a way really kind of designed to do that. But I don't think it was ever conceived of how that would affect unintended discourse when it comes to political issues or right. or, or things like that. Right. But it, we here we are. Right. I mean, we in have... the end, you're just talking with people you agree with. Yeah, not all and, the time, of course. And but... you're hearing messages that you that reinforce what you already right. believe, yeah. whether those messages are true or not. That's what you end up with, and and, and all you hear is that. And so you you well, then to... where does the news media play into that? What what does the news need to do? Can they do anything? I don't. I, I mean, it's hard. But look, but... If, if you self-select and you put yourself into a group where all you're going to hear is all, all you're going to see is stories from Breitbart and from Infowars and from Daily Caller and all of those, you know, and, and whatever else is even further out there in the fever swamps and on the fringes. I, I don't know. I mean, you work for the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Arizona Republic or the Arizona Mirror. And I mean, it, it, it's not going to break. It may not break through that algorithmic self, you know, sorting. And and so I, I don't I don't know what the media has to do. I, I it, it needs to play a role, certainly, you know, if there's going to be a solution to it, I think the media is part of it. Um, you know, I, I do think that one of the ways forward for the media dealing with a lot of these, you know, just the kind of the, the brazen lies that we've seen politicians are just really confident in being able to say now is, you know, <laughs> something called that I was reading about recently called the truth sandwich, where instead of just saying, oh, hey, so-and-so, you know, President Trump or uh, Governor, you know, Governor, Fox Governor or somebody Jones a story or Fox on this. Or, and and in, yeah. instead of it being, oh, we're just repeating, oh, here's what they said and it's not true. Say, here's the truth. So migrants, you know, this migrant caravan is not, this, this very undangerous group of poor people from Honduras is coming to America. The president said that they're filled with terrorists and, you know, armed gang members. That's not true, you know. Right, so, right, so you right. kind of like you, you, there's, you tell the truth, you tell the lie, and then you tell the truth again. Right. And so, it, it's a way to not. It's just a theory, re, yeah. To not just reinforce it. To, to so so the conversation is framed not as the the person who is telling the lie says this, and here's the lie, and then oh yeah, here's the truth, because it's 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 a matter of what what is it that's going to stick with people, and what are you reinforcing in people's in people's minds? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can tell people people. I mean, it's been proven in sociological tests for, for decades now that if someone believes something wrong, you can tell them the truth and they're not going to believe you. They're, in fact, in most cases, they're going to double down and they're going to believe even harder in the wrong thing, in the in the false thing. Uh, so it's it's a way of trying to slowly eat away at that, you know, that human process. And, and that's something that has is totally divorced from politics. It's something that's been around, I think, as long as humanity has been around, that, that people are confident in their... In, in what they believe and, and they're most confident in the things humans that, aren't terribly good at being logical or whatever yeah yeah right we, we've <laughs> we've done a lot of evolving over the you know over the, the millions of years but that one seems to have kind of stymied us and this is kind of connected to the whole uh fake news stuff i mean none of that like all you need to do is know know the reputable news organizations to know 
what's fake and what's not. Yeah, but if you don't trust the reputable news organizations, then what are you left with, right? So, I mean, there certainly needs to be media literacy, but there needs to be confidence in 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 the media. And the media has done itself, you know, certainly no favors in that regard. I mean, there is an arrogance in the media. Um, I'm guilty of it. You know, Lord knows national media, I think, is exponentially more guilty. You know, I think the bigger the organization you work at, I think the more guilty you are of, of that kind of an arrogance. Um, and, and you know, that, that doesn't that doesn't help. And, and uh, you know, things like Twitter, uh, you know, and Facebook. You we'll know, talk we're, about we're, media literacy for a little bit because yeah. people don't really know. I mean, uh, well, I'll tell you, the first thing I do whenever I see a link, like if I see someone tweet a link and it's got an interesting headline and I click on it and I go through it. And if it's something I don't recognize, the first thing I do is I scroll all the way to the bottom of that page and I look to see, okay, does this thing have, a, have something on here that says this is satire or this is not real or... Is this a partisan organization? Is, is this really not a news site, but it's a mouthpiece for something else, uh, which usually entails going to that About Us page that pretty much every website's going to have and, and looking at that and then making my decision on there. Okay, what, do I, am I going to trust what comes from here based on this very, you know, 90 seconds worth of research that I've done? <laughs> you know, do I... It's not that difficult, really. A lot of times you can get fooled for sure. Sure. But it takes skepticism on, on the consumer, on the content consumer basically um and if you don't have skepticism then we're back to where sure you know yeah and and that assumes a that people are actually clicking on the links on facebook which i can tell you from my own experience managing facebook pages they don't mm. but i get way more comments on a lot of stories that i do clicks on the story so i can mm. i can figure out what's happening there you know and 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 also uh, that idea of of is what's in that headline or what's in that facebook post reinforcing what you already believe you know, if, if you already believe that illegal immigration is a scourge on America and that we are, you know, we should be mm. cowering in fear because these, these people are coming across the border bringing drunk drugs and guns and diseases, well, then anything that kind of feeds into that, into that, you're going to be inclined immediately to agree that, with. Yeah. You're going to click on like, you're going to click on share because you already, you already have that belief. And something that challenges it is probably, well, in Facebook's case, it's probably never going to show up in your feed, but... If someone confronts you with it, you're, you know, it's human instinct, I think, to be to be disinclined to believe that because obviously, you know, because, you, you know, you have your feelings and, and and you're very, very sure about the way you feel about this. And, and it's that whole idea of what, what was uh, Stephen Colbert had the, the truthiness, truthiness, yes. you know, and, and it, yeah, I think yeah. it kind of gets back to that yeah. whole idea. Alternative facts, truthiness. Yes. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, America's got to look within itself. And it's just it's. Nobody wants to look within. No, themselves. I mean it takes work, and exactly. it, you know it takes work as not just as a, as individuals, but as a society, and and that's that's tough. One thing I um, I forgot to ask you was about the election was if there was anything that struck you about the election, whether it was local, national, whatever. Like what what's what what's your kind of takeaway from the whole thing? Uh, the thing that most surprised me in the election was how the Republican Party basically decided that it was going to spend a week undermining the integrity of our election system uh, and and casting doubt on the fact that our elections are run in a free and fair manner uh, and and suing to stop votes from being counted and then claiming that Democrats were stealing the election. It's fraud if you lose, fraud. basically. And that was basically what it came down to. And, and that is... Uh, I mean, that's an incredibly irresponsible thing to do. Uh, we, you know, one of the things that sets America apart from, from so many other attempts at, at democracies and at Republican small r forms of government is, you know, our, our peaceful transfer of power, that we have elections, people believe them, 
power transfers from the old people to the new people. We don't have military coups. We don't have these uprisings. We don't have people storming the White House or storming the governor's mansion. And, you know, this, you know, ever since Trump was running for president and, and, you know, I mean, how he talked about how, oh, well, if I lose, I'm never, I'm not going to accept it. It's a rigged election. I, uh, you know, the only way I, the only way this election is, is a good one or is a valid one is if I win, which is damaging of its own. But now you have the Republican Party being, and, now, and this is something was happening Now the whole here. team is doing it. Now the whole team is doing it. And, and for, you know, to basically take the approach that if we win, it's great. If we lose, then it has to be fraud. And, oh, look, there's a Democrat involved in counting ballots or is running the office of counting ballots, so they're stealing the election from us. It's incredibly damaging. It's damaging to Arizonans. It's damaging to the Republican Party. It's damaging to to everything. And and it's really – I mean it, I, I found it really kind of a disgusting thing for them to be doing. Uh, to, to, to essentially say, well, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, and, and we'd, we'd rather have people have no faith or have less faith in the electoral system that we have than admit that our favored candidates and our favored ideas didn't prevail at the ballot box. And it's not just the election electoral system. It's the, it's the, it's the Department of Justice. It's everything. It's like, I mean, Trump's kind of like broken down distrust, distrust, on so many levels with so many aspects of the government that he tears stuff down basically um, rather than building stuff up. Uh, so yeah, um, that's definitely a theme that appears, it's been happening for a while and it's going to continue. One of the cool things that I like about this podcast is that we tend to have people that have been in the in, in the Valley in Arizona here, yeah. grew up here or spent a lot of time here. Um, so one of the things that I like to ask people is, well, how has the Valley changed? You grew up here. You've seen it. Uh, how, how, how does it, how does it, has it changed for you from your perspective? Uh, you know, it, there's, it's changed a lot. I mean, obviously, I mean, I think it, as someone who grew up in North Phoenix, kind of near the, near the boundaries or, or knew where the yes, boundaries of back, town was, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I've definitely seen it change because there are a lot of areas that I remember were as desert. Because right? North Phoenix was North Phoenix, like oh yeah, yeah. Way I, mean, north. I mean, look, most of my friends, you know, like when I was in high school, and, you know, at Nineteenth and Indian School, most of my friends were from Central Phoenix or maybe a little bit, you know, Glendale. But very few people lived north of Do you north else? of Dunlap, certainly. Well, yeah, but, but, yeah. I, I mean, we're north of Northern. Most people yeah. were were south of that, right? Right. And so, you know, to be like, well, where do you live? Well, Greenway, what the hell is that? Like people, I mean, literally, these are folks who who had never gone through North Mountain Preserve up Seventh Street, mm-hmm. you know, over the mountain there by the point, or if they had had been to go play golf and they were like, God, this is so far away from where I live, and 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 so uh, you know, being being up there and and seeing the way that that North Phoenix changed, especially, you know, there's been so much development. I mean, it's been been the story of of everything. I mean, when Anthem was created, I remember Anthem being like, I mean, mm. so far away. And now it's developed all the way, you know, go along that I-17 corridor, and it's developed almost the entire way up to Anthem now, um, you know, or or even, uh, you know, the, the whole 101, uh, just, I mean, the, the freeways, yeah, the freeways free. that have been developed, you know, yeah. just in the time since I've been driving are, uh, they're, they're great, frankly. <laughs> they you are. Know? If you've uh, lived anybody anywhere else, you yeah. know that, or gone anywhere else for yeah. that matter. You know, yeah, I mean, the ability to go from North Phoenix to drive out to, you know, Glendale or drive out to Tolleson or to Buckeye or, right. you know, to Scottsdale or Mesa by getting on a freeway and just driving and not having to, you know, 
not having just one free one, not just having the 17 and the 10, you know, in town yeah. or, or, uh, you know, having to take, okay, well, maybe if I, if I go over to Tatum and I take Tatum down, you know, and, and, and then you I can, find then I can get over to Scottsdale road and, and you know, yeah. um, you know, so it's, I mean, drive, commuting, getting around town is so much easier and the light rail makes it even that much easier if, if you need to go somewhere that's on that route. Um, you know, that, that's something that I, I certainly hope gets expanded more and that, mm. that you have, you know, that there's more opportunities. I mean, it, if you spend any time in a big city and you realize just kind of how valuable public transit can be, totally. and then you come back to Phoenix and you realize just really how inadequate our system is for, you know, trying to get around without having to use a car, which is next to impossible. Mm, especially here. Yeah. Where is news going? Delivery, that sort of thing. I mean, it's going to transition to all digital at some point, I think. I, I mean, think that's inevitable. Uh, it's just a matter of how does that transition happen and 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 how do the legacy media corporations, I mean, you know, and, and, and large corporations too. I mean, we're not just talking, I mean, not just talking about, oh, the family-owned company that's, you know, or the, the small, closely held, you know, private company that, that maybe they own a chain, you know, that but but what are they going to do for revenue? Because that I mean, you have an ad revenue issue. You, you mm -hmm. potentially have a subscription issue depending on your publication. Um, you I mean, know, the nonprofit seems to work some for some. Yeah, things. I think so. I, I think it's, it's a huge path forward. I, it's not a silver bullet. And I don't think that there is one, but it, it's going to be an increasingly larger part of, I think the media landscape is nonprofit because I mean, really the whole concept is news is a public good. The journalism is a public good. We we report on what's happening in the community for the community, and we exist, you know, basically because there are people who who fund us. And and in large part, you know, you're gonna have people from the community who are going to support you, just like they would, just like they do any charity in town. Um, you know, whether it's the the Humane Society or Saint Vincent de Paul or you know or your local church. I mean, these are these are all charities that are supported by the generosity of the people who believe in in them and in what they do. And I think journalism is entering into that. And I, and I think, you know, the 2016 election and, and the result, the resulting two years and, and all of the complaints about the media, uh, and, 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 you know, in, in larger, large part, I, I think some of the ways the media didn't do such a good job in that election, I think has really brought home the fact that boy, journalism is important. Like there is a need for good journalism and it's certainly, you know, being at AZCIR and, and having a hand directly in all that fundraising at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, that was a message that resonated with a lot of people was, you know, they wanted, they were, they were saying, we want to give you money. How can we help? We want to support good journalism. We like what you do. And, and those kinds of, those kinds of uh, appeals to people really worked. And, and there were people who, who definitely got more engaged uh, overnight and said, Okay, we've got to make sure that we we help this and that we keep these kinds of things alive. And who who can I give to? Where can I put my money to to match what I believe? Where do what do you see Phoenix? How do you see it 10, 20 years from now? Oh, what would you like it to be? Well, I would love to have, you know, I love, one of my favorite cities is Chicago. And I mm. one of the things I love about Chicago is that you can go you could get in a hotel downtown and you can get just about everywhere you need with the the metro system and with you know a bus pass if you totally need. and and i would love to have a system where you know you could conceivably commute from various parts of the valley uh you know that that didn't involve taking a 45 minute bus ride uh you know i'd like to i'd love to see something like light rail expanded i'd love to see you know uh better better opportunities for for transit i mean i think that that's really important going forward and and it's it's something that's going to become increasingly more important as phoenix continues to grow 
I mean, we've been growing like you know like a weed Ouch. since the 1950s it's going to continue you know it'll ebb and flow with the economy when the housing market goes up and down but it's we're still going to be a we're still a good place to live you know there, there's still a lot of really good reasons to live here uh and and people are going to continue to come here from from other states either as they retire or oh, yeah. as they you know just decide that they they don't want to live in the cold weather anymore mm-hmm. and that's i mean i don't know how many people come yeah. from the midwest and back east the, the midwest mostly you know that are like hey i I don't want to shovel snow anymore. You know, but what, Iowa's not for me. I'm coming back. No to Phoenix, way. Yeah, yeah. But would it be hard to be a journalist in Chicago without a car? Even I don't know. That's actually a really good question. I think you know? it, it would probably depend on what you're covering. True. Uh, you yeah, because if I, you're always at the Capitol, you're always at the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, I had a former coworker who was a, a longtime journalist in Chicago before before he moved out to the Valley, and and he, you know. I, I don't know that he always used a car, but I mean, it was right. just a matter of, you know, he was covering development downtown. So, okay, well, he was at the, you know, at the, the Sun Times, their office was right downtown. You can walk right. around, you can, go, you can go get where you need to go. My brother lived there for three years, yeah. never had a car. Yeah, I've got a, uh, my, my former publisher uh, lives there now and mm-hmm. I, they've got a car, but they don't use it. Right. You know, it stays in their garage. And, it's, and, and that's expensive too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. It's great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to our 27th episode of On The Grid. If you'd like to reach us, we can be found at onthegridphx.com or email us at onthegridphx at gmail.com. On The Grid is produced by Chris Ayers. Intro music was performed by local band Factories. They can be reached at factoriesmusic.com. And to learn more about Arizona Mirror, visit azmirror.com. And as tradition goes, at the end of each of our episodes, we play out a song from a local band. This episode, it's Arizona's own Roger Klein and the Peacemakers. It's a track from his newest release called Native Heart. Once again, thanks for joining us at On the Grid. Just like the stars Blaze above the superstitions